Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol is the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. She got her master's degree in social gerontology, used to run the aging program for ACOG, and keeps her fingers in national programs as well, recently appointed to a national committee. Right, to the National Family Caregiver Advisory Committee for Secretary Azar, who is the Secretary for Health and Human Services. And you're going to find the solution to all of our aging issues. That's right. You know, there was a recent editorial in the New York Times about caregiving and the indignities of Alzheimer's. And, you know, there's just so many issues um, that caregivers have to face. And I think one of them we're going to address today, um, talking with Dr. Christopher Thompson about you know, cardiac problems because, you know, so many people deal with congestive heart failures. There's a lot of caregivers out there that have a loved one that has some sort of heart issue, uh, and it causes tremendous concern. Well, we're delighted to have Dr. Thompson in the studio. He, uh, to, to waive all my HIPAA problems and issues, he is my designated cardiologist. When I met him, I had a heart rate of about 185 beats per minute, and he thought that was just a tad high, and we went on to diagnose AFib, something I knew nothing about. And since then, we have had a lot of conversations as I spend not a lot of time in his office, but from time to time for a checkup. And one of the issues that comes up is what we're talking about today. How do you make sure you have heart health? How do we live to 110 or so? And what are the things caregivers ought to know in caring for someone who may be at risk? So, Chris, thanks for coming in. Uh, my pleasure. Um, so I guess we'll start with how do you stay healthy as, you know, that applies to all of us. Exactly. Uh, I really think we go back to the basics. You know, so often we're focused on high tech and the new medications and the new treatments. And I saw this on the news and I read this article online. But it really the basics are eat healthy. Um, and we can go into more detail on that, but I won't right now. Um, exercise regularly. The American Heart Association recommends 30 minutes of some kind of activity where you're up and moving around. It could be walking, biking, housework, yard work, going to the gym. Uh, all of those are options, but something where you're up moving 30 minutes a day. A big one would be not smoking. Certainly, Do you still see patients who smoke? We still see patients who smoke. Wow. As, not as many older adults, although you know it, it's quite the addiction um, that I've had patients that have had several open-heart surgeries and heart attacks, and they're still smoking. And wow. Some, I've seen people on oxygen from lung disease that still smoke. And I actually think it's not as much you're addicted to nicotine. It's just a habit that you smoke at certain times a day, and you you know can't find something else to replace that habit, and it's hard to break. Um, another one would be excessive alcohol use certainly um, leads to limited life. Um, lots of side effects from that with the liver and the heart and the brain and accidents. And then after all of those things, healthy diet, exercise, avoiding some of those toxins, getting enough sleep is making sure that you're seeing your doctor regularly, getting checked for things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, which are you know, quite common and 
uh, our San Antonio and American population. Now, the thing that you often hear, and Carol, you hear this as well, what do I need to go to the doctor for? I'm in perfect health. I don't have a problem. I feel good. I'll go see Dr. Thompson when my heart quits ticking. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I love working for WellMed is we try to prevent a problem before you have it. And really, that's the best way to practice medicine. We've all heard the stitch in time saves nine. You know, by getting your blood pressure checked at a younger age and regularly, um, you can detect high blood pressure and treat it early uh, and avoid the many complications like heart attacks, strokes, kidney failure. Um, Same thing with high cholesterol. You can get on treatment for that. Um, And in addition to your exercise and watching your diet and avoid heart attacks and strokes, um, with diabetes, you know, we have so many diabetic patients, especially in San Antonio. It really just affects the whole body, the circulation of the arms and legs, the brain, the heart, um, infections, non-healing wounds. And and a lot of those things you can't feel. You know, if my first boss at WellMed, Richard Manning, were here, he would talk about his his sister who died of heart problems because she couldn't feel that she had high blood pressure. She never got it checked. High blood pressure used to be called the silent killer because you don't feel bad usually when you have it. And then the doctor goes and puts you on one or two or three medicines, and now you start having side effects, and you feel worse than you did before. And, you, you know, patients, you know, <laughs> not unexpectedly would say, why should I take this medicine? I feel worse. But, you know, clearly over time you're preventing heart attacks, strokes, kidney failure. Well, what is that magic number? When should, if I'm, you know, checking the blood pressure you know, I've got the cuff at home. When should I start thinking, hmm, maybe there's a problem? I mean, there's a lot of debate in the scientific literature, and it changes. Keeps changing. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, yeah, I was hoping you were going to give me the answer. <laughs> I mean, I would say the number a lot of us stick with is 140 systolic and 90 on the diastolic. You know, they've even changed over time. Do you worry more about the top number or the bottom number? Um, we would say, you know, pay attention to both. They tend to go together. So if the top number of systolic goes up, the diastolic goes up. But in general, if you can keep it below 140 over 90, you're at least getting close to your goal. Some people would suggest, in a diabetic especially, you want more like 130 over 80. Really, a normal blood pressure in somebody who doesn't eat the Western American diet, who's active, who's not overweight, would be more like 110, 120 over maybe 60 or 70. Um, That being said, and I, I just mentioned the lifestyle things, there are people that have genetic high blood pressure where... They can be running marathons, eating no salt, and they still have a really high blood pressure and, and something that's just genetic. Now, you mentioned the Western American diet, diet, which is shorthand for meat, 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 meat. Well, meat. I would say sugar, salt, and fat. That's what makes food taste good to most of us, including me. So when I'm talking to the patients about here's what you need to avoid to be on a low-salt diet, I, I preface it by saying I'm going to give you a list of my favorite foods, <laughs> bacon, sausage, salami, cheese, Fast food, restaurant food, hamburgers, pizza, soup, chips. There you are. Pretzels, peanuts. That was, that was lunch today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was going to say, wow, that sounds familiar. So instead of all of those high salt things, and not that you can never have those things, but fresh food like fresh vegetables, fruit, things you cook at home like chicken and fish that are broiled or grilled or baked um, rather than fried. Is it the, the Mediterranean diet? Do you? I mean, that's the only that's the that? only diet that has any real research proving you live longer. Um, and the Mediterranean diet is high in olive oil, which is a mono monosaturated fat, yeah. And a lot of fish, um, a lot of wine, garlic. You know, Americans were lazy, so 
when we hear that, well, gar- a high garlic diet is good for you, you know, we want to take a garlic pill. And we want to take <laughs> a pill with our monounsaturated or our fish oil. Right. Um, but we... Or we want to take, they even have pills for like the healthy part of red wine. What's it? The flavonoids, I think. Oh, right. A flavonoid, flavonoid pill. Flavonoid wow. pill. Everybody wants, you know. I missed that. I would definitely not be taking the pill instead of drinking the wine. I have some patients <laughs> that take, you know, 10 different vitamin pills hoping to get, you know, all the vitamins they need. Wow. And really, it's, it's probably healthier just to eat a well-rounded Probably. Well, well plus it's no fun. I mean, that just doesn't sound fun at all. Now, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Dr. Chris Thompson. He is a well-med cardiologist, and we're talking about how to keep heart healthy and how to live a long time. Our co-host, Carol Zorniel, is here. I'm Ron Aaron. Chris, when you think about longevity, my mother used to say she lived into her 90s, everything hurt. That it wasn't really a plus to live that long if everything hurts. Yeah, you know... I look at, we have, first I'll say, when I started as a doctor 25 years ago, when we came across a 90-year-old, we got excited, and you'd grab the other doctors and medical students and say, hey, come check out this lady, she's 90. It's very common now. In, in my normal clinic, which I might have 10 patients in an afternoon, I probably see one or two 90-year-olds every day now. Wasn't your grandmother in her 90s? She died at 102 this oh, year. Oh, rest, oh, rest her soul. Wow. This is the one he kept using as an example to <laughs> well, me. You can she, still use her she as had an example. AFib, oh. right? She had AFib yeah. and she did not die of her AFib. Oh, no good. I, I'm always telling people you're not going to die this right. AFib. It's a nuisance. So she lived 102. 102. That's pretty good. That is very good. I'm yeah. sorry for your loss. So the patient I want to tell you about, I serendipitously just saw in the hospital this morning. And they had called me yesterday afternoon and said, hey, we've got a 96-year-old lady admitted with AFib. And in my mind, I conjure up, you know, this decrepit old lady you know, in a wheelchair. And I go see her this morning. And, I mean, she really looked like she was 70. I joked with her to ask her if she's getting Botox. She <laughs> swore to me she doesn't get Botox. She goes to the gym three times a week. She says her whole life since she was a young wow. girl, she's been exercising. Um, I said, what kind of exercises do you do? She goes to the gym, and they have, like, 15 different, like, exercise weight machines she does a stationary bicycle and i mean she is in perfect shape at 96 she has no hearing issues her mind was sharp Um, she doesn't use any mobility aids Um, if i could be like that i'd love to live to 90 but she has afib she has afib but hers is hopefully going to go away and for those who don't know what it is what is it afib well it's number one it's a very common probably the the most common abnormal heart rhythm in patients over age 70 it's a change from the normal, regular heart rhythm called sinus rhythm, where it's going lub dub, lub dub, lub dub, and it starts skipping all around, going And some people notice it, especially if their heart's going very fast, like 170 when you had it. But surprisingly, some people show up and don't notice it. My patient I'm talking about, she went to her doctor's office yesterday, I think, Dr. Gonzalez, and she just knew she was not breathing quite right. And when they checked her pulse, it was like 150. Wow. She wanted to go back home. Of course. He called me and said, uh, you know. <laughs> seems, seems a lie. <laughs> Sometimes we will put people on medicine to slow it down and let them go home, but I was a little worried that she might pass out. I have had a patient before who Right. I, my, my father had AFib and passed out backwards over the tub and broke yeah. three ribs. Yeah. Wow. Not fine. So it, you know, it, it, very common rhythm. It's irregular heart rhythm. It causes problems because you can form a blood clot and have a stroke. So most people get put on a blood thinner of some sort. And then usually it wants to beat too fast so you have to either be put on rhythm medicine to slow it down or sometimes we let it go back to, or make it go back to normal there's one of the health techs at uh, 
Wellman, who loves listening to my heart because it's so weird. Yeah. Oh, he's here. Can I listen? Oh, boy. Yeah. Fun. Well, um, so we're going to take a break in just a second. But when we come back, maybe um, talking about the conversation with the doctor. So a lot of times caregivers are not, you know, you, you want, as a physician, want to make the most use of your time. And they want to get the information they need. And maybe they've been online and have all kinds of things in their head that you were mentioning. So let's talk a little bit when we come back about that conversation with the physician. We talk more about Dr. Google right here on WellMed's Caregiver SOS on air. Our special guest, Dr. Chris Thompson, a cardiologist. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. We are excited to bring you the all-new WellMed Radio. Our goal is to help make listeners healthier by focusing on health and wellness for adults everywhere. The new WellMed Radio features Dr. Joshua Beck, an outstanding family physician and attorney and veteran broadcaster, Ron Aaron. Ooh, that's me. Each week, we will focus on health prevention and wellness that's critical to the quality of life. WellMed Radio, Saturday mornings at 7, Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. We are rocking and rolling here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernil. Our special guest, Dr. Chris Thompson. He is a cardiologist with WellMed, and we're talking about how to keep heart healthy. And, Carol, right before we took a little break, uh, you were mentioning to uh, uh, Dr. Thompson about caregivers talking to doctors, both respecting each other's time, but getting the information they need. Right. So do you have any suggestions for family members who are who are coming in to, to see you about what they might bring or how they might organize themselves to have a productive visit? Yeah. So first I'll say we surprisingly do have a lot of family members that come um, often with their parents, um, which is usually very helpful because especially when the, when the patient is a male, something about men like over age 70 or, or maybe even younger. And you're looking at me because? They, they'll come. I may go through a whole explanation or the doctor tells them all these things and they get home and the family says, so what did the doctor say? He's like, oh, you know, Nothing. I'm fine. Cut down on salt. No, I'm fine. I'm fine would be the answer. What are you supposed to do, Dad? Uh, he didn't say anything. Well, what, you know, they basically, <laughs> either they don't remember anything or they just don't want to say anything. So I do encourage family members <laughs> to come. Um, you know, one, two or three family members, you, it's hard in a small exam room to have, you know, five or six um, I actually have some of my patients, my older patients who care for their grandkids or their great grandkids. And you might think that the little kids were disruptive, but I love seeing the little kids. So I would say keep bringing them. That's cool. Um, but as far as like what's the most useful thing, if you're going to go, say, with your, your parent um, or your spouse, if, if you know there's some questions you want to get answered, write them down. Because once we start talking, patients often will say, you know, I wanted to ask you something, but I can't remember what it is. I will say... Nothing probably makes a doctor like cringe more than you pull out a list of like 18 questions. You're like, there's a few things I want to ask you. Here, let's start with page one. But if you said, you know, I have three things I really three, want. Top three questions. Uh, maybe five. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the whole Dr. Google thing, there's a lot of good information online, especially if you get it, you know, rep reputable places. Um, but some of it can be a little bit crazy. So, um, Which is not Wikipedia. You know, we're talking NIH. The CDC actually has one of the best yeah. websites with public information. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I would say there's a lot of good ones. The, you know, the different, like, American Heart Association. American Heart Association, or Diabetes sure. Association. Um, 
Mayo Clinic, um, Cleveland Clinic, a lot of these places are are pretty good. When you look at the numbers, uh, heart disease is still a leading cause of death. I mean, it still is the leading cause of death, and especially if you group heart disease, stroke, congestive heart failure, I think that's three or four of the top five, I mean, other than, like, lung cancer. And and you see stroke patients also? Yeah, we see a lot of stroke patients. Um, Strokes are caused by a whole variety of reasons. We've done a show on stroke, but... um, Cholesterol buildup in the brain and the carotid arteries is certainly one. AFib is another. Uh, high blood pressure, especially uncontrolled high blood pressure over a period of years, it puts you at high risk for stroke. And folks who have AFib, and you said it's so common, uh, often take a blood thinner. Why is that? To basically, with the AFib, your upper heart chamber is not squeezing normally, so you can form a little blood clot in these little kind of nooks and crannies of the atrium. There's a little part that almost looks like the tip of your ear called the auricle in Latin, and you can form a little blood clot there, and then one day it just decides to break loose and floats up to the brain, and you're having a major stroke. And you die. Well, usually you don't die, which... But you have the major stroke, yeah, Sometimes that's maybe worse. Almost worse. Right, exactly. Um, And there are a lot of treatments for stroke now, so I can mention, so if you're especially a caretaker, and you're concerned that your family member might be having a stroke, you know, there's some quick signs uh, to look at that. One is look at their face and have them smile. It should be equally symmetrical on both sides. If there's a droop on one side, that's concerning. If their speech is garbled, that's concerning. You can have them hold out their arms, and if they don't keep their arms equally elevated uh, or if they seem to be weak on one side, that's a possible side of a stroke. And really, it's an emergency just like a heart attack. They can now go in and either give you a blood thinner to dissolve the stroke and they like to do that within three or four hours. Or now some of the hospitals, even in San Antonio, go in with catheters and th- suck out blood clots and wow. reperfuse the brain. So they're making great advances in stroke care. Ten years ago, I might have said, well, there's not much we can do for stroke. Now there's a lot more we can do. So important to identify early, important to get people to the hospital early. Well, yeah. and, and one of the things that I, I witness over and over again in family and friends is the Take me to the hospital. I think I'm having a stroke. Take me to the hospital. I think I'm having a heart attack. Is your recommendation that they drive themselves or a family member drive them to the hospital in a, in a stroke? Or, I mean, is, when is the time to call the ambulance? Because it re- scares me sometimes if you think you're having a heart attack and you're going to just drive yeah. yourself to the I hospital. I mean, certainly a patient having a heart attack and stroke should not try to drive themselves to the hospital should not person having a stroke or heart attack do not drive yourself to the hospital okay i mean unless that's your only option um but i mean really 911 would be the safest thing um, because the paramedics will get to your house usually pretty quickly and they can do some early testing and sometimes they may find hey you're not having a stroke you're just having a pinched nerve or, or something else and they might not even take you to the hospital if you pass the early test and that you don't just stay you just saved six hours of sitting someplace, possibly possibly um but if you if you if it really is an emergency if it's a heart attack that you're having you could have a life-threatening heart arrhythmia at any point where you basically collapse and then it's your family member you know you're driving in the car and they can't do cpr because they're driving the car whereas the ems people can do cpr give you medication call the er get everything set up so you're you're much safer in an ambulance than riding in any car now i do know that uh uh, if you walk into a hospital emergency room and say that uh, your spouse or, or your aunt or uncle or whatever is having a stroke, they do get you in quickly. You don't sit and wait anymore. Yeah, I mean, there's there's actually protocols, quality protocols, for example, for chest pain. Most chest pain that people have is not a heart attack, luckily. Most of it's you know, kind of a false alarm. But we still tell you, if you're having a severe chest pain, 
a new chest pain. It's not going away. Get to the hospital. Get checked out. Some of these can be heart attacks. The severity of the pain doesn't necessarily tell you if it's a heart attack. In fact, I would say most of the people I've seen having heart attacks are not having the worst pain they've ever had. Um, what, are the, what, what symptoms? What, say, what are the symptoms? I mean, it's often the classic heart attack is a chest heaviness, squeezing, pressure. The classic description is it felt like an elephant was sitting on my chest and wouldn't get off. Often you'd be short of breath. Often you'd break out into kind of a cold sweat. It may go to your neck and arm. Um, but it can be different in different people. It's not always that pressure. Sometimes it's more of a sharp pain. And different in women. Yeah, different in women, different in diabetics. So right there, that's 70% of our people. And what should a, a caregiver know in that case uh, to try to figure out what's going on with their care recipient? Yeah, I mean, I would say if they're having a major pain, you know, I might give it a few minutes to go away. Like, hey, sit down, drink a little glass of water. You can kind of tell by looking at somebody how they're doing you know if their eyes are kind of glazed over and you're like uh, you don't look quite right maybe you're pale or maybe you're a little sweaty i i would have a low threshold to just call 911 you know once you come to the hospital and go to the emergency room we spend like six or eight hours testing you to figure out if you had a heart attack so how is a person at home at the kitchen dinner table going to figure out am i having a heart attack is my husband having a heart attack you can't tell. they won't know right. you won't know so you know we like i said we have a lot of false alarms but we want to have those false alarms because if you stay home guessing well this is probably just indigestion you know i've had patients come see me a week later i had this really bad indigestion last week and we do tests and we find out yeah you had a really bad heart attack last week (laughs) and we missed the you know the chance to improve that if we go in early we can open up the vessels and save heart muscle and prevent the complications well you mentioned um uh, heaviness in the chest the elephant but what if the tightness arm neck I mean, is that something that tells you you something is starting to go wrong? I mean, is there, are there degrees of that? I mean, I would say it would be hard for a patient to sort that out. I mean, I, many patients that have a heart attack would have some warning symptoms, especially once they realize they're having a heart attack and they yeah, look that's back. that's really the extreme, they more may, the elephant. They may say, yeah, i was been kind of having this pain off and on for the last week. That being said, you can also feel perfectly fine and start having a massive heart attack with no warning at all. Sometimes a heart attack, the first warning is you basically collapse, you know, when you're right. out on the ground and people right. are doing CPR. That's the first sign of a heart attack. Now, what is it that's happening to you physically? Well, there's two main ways that you die of a heart attack. One is if it's a huge heart attack, like a major blood vessel like your left main or this one called the left anterior descending. You can damage so much of the heart muscle suddenly that your blood pressure drops. You go into a state of what we call cardiogenic shock. Your heart can't pump enough blood flow and you, you can die of that within hours. The more dangerous even than that is you can go into abnormal heart rhythms called ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation, where all of a sudden your heart just goes from the regular bump, 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 bump to beating 400 times a minute. And at that speed, it's not even really There's squeezing. no blood going through. And you basically pass out, collapse. You know, if there's people around you, they're often going to start doing CPR or calling 911. But you really have at that point, you know, minutes to live if somebody doesn't start CPR and bring your heart back to wow. normal. Right. Well, talk, let's talk about um, congestive heart failure because we have a lot of older persons that have congestive heart failure. What does that mean? It's kind of a broad term, and it, it sounds really scary because, you know, somebody <laughs> tells you you have heart failure, your first thought is, I'm going to die how soon from now? <laughs> There's really two types of congestive heart failure. Twenty years ago, we would have thought that or told people that most heart failure is a weak heart, an enlarged heart usually damaged by heart attacks or valve problems or other conditions, cardiomyopathies. But really now with our population getting older, um, 
and the prevalence of high blood pressure and diabetes and people being overweight, not exercising enough. Most of the heart failure we see, which probably 80%, is what we call diastolic heart failure, which is a big fancy term that you know makes most people's eyes glaze over. And even many doctors who aren't cardiologists would not be sure what exactly diastolic heart failure is. I explain it as a heart that's become stiff, so it still squeezes well. When we look at it on a different testing, it squeezes well. It's still strong, but it's stiff. So half of the heart's function is to squeeze. The other half is to open up and let the blood back in. And if it gets stiff, it takes more pressure in the veins to fill up the heart, and that raises the pressure in your lungs, so you get short of breath, raises the pressure in your other veins of your body, uh, so you get swollen legs, bloating of the abdomen, those are kind of your classic symptoms would be shortness of breath on exertion, shortness of breath laying down, especially at night, swelling of the legs, bloating of the abdomen. Usually you're gaining weight as you're retaining fluid. Right. But with treatment, that that is not necessary. I mean, as long as you're doing your medications and the treatment, that people can live for a, a while with congestive heart yeah, failure. Yeah, I mean, as a group, their prognosis is not as good as people without it. But, you know, I've had many patients of both types of heart failure live, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. The keys well, that would, was more. That was yeah. more than I was going to give them, but okay, uh, great. No, no it's certainly ten. ten. I mean, it, yeah, it's not some, an imminent death. Like some people sounds. have very severe forms, you know, where we're talking about heart transplantation or or things like that. But that's a minority. Most people with congestive heart failure, it's fairly minor, and they are going to live with this for five or ten years, and hopefully longer if they take care of their. Got to stop you right here. You've been great. It's always good to have you on. Yeah. Thank I'll, you. I'll come back whenever you want. Thanks cool. for joining us. Dr. Chris Thompson, WellMed cardiologist. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here. We thank you for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org.